0: Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and my guest this week is, once again, Animal Legal Defense Fund's Amanda Howell, and she will be discussing litigation brought by one of my very favorite companies in the whole world, and that is Miyoko's. And it was founded by one of my very favorite people in the whole world, and that is Miyoko Schinner. And Miyoko's, of course, makes amazing, amazing vegan cheeses, but the focus of this lawsuit is their vegan butter. Which is just fast stuff in the world. And it has run into some pretty serious labeling problems with the state of California's Department of Food and Agriculture. Oi, apparently, when you call your product vegan butter, it doesn't make clear to the public that it's vegan. Like, what? Okay, so we'll be going into that. But before we get to that, I just want to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is the not for profit that produces the Animal Law podcast. It also produces the Our Hen House podcast, which I hope you're listening to as well. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. You can join our flock. That's what we call our donors, our flock. Pretty cute, right? For $10 a month, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount. And we, of course, know that these are pretty hard times and complicated times. And for many, this may not be possible. But if it is possible for you uh, and you're able to do it, we would desperately appreciate it. And our supporters always know, I think, they're helping to provide animal-friendly media, not just to themselves, it's not just for yourself, but you're supplying it to others who can't afford right now to contribute. And animal-friendly media and animal law media is so important. It's so important to spread the word. And we are very grateful for any help that you provide. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please do check out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. And so now let's get to the interview. Amanda Howell, who, as I mentioned, has been on the podcast before, is a staff attorney for the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And she uses her background in strategic impact litigation, which she gained at the Stanley Law Group and the Center for Science and the Public Interest, to improve the food system and curb the harmful practices of multinational corporations. She is dedicated to using her skills to improve life for all sentient beings and positively impact individual health, public health, and our environment. Don't you wish you could say that about all lawyers? Anyway, now to our interview with Amanda. Hi, everyone. I'm Camille Labchuk, one of Canada's leading animal rights lawyers and the executive director of Animal Justice.
1: And I'm Peter Sankoff, author, blogger, lawyer and criminal law and animal law professor at the University of Alberta.
0: Together, we host the Paw and Order podcast, Canada's only animal law podcast brought to you by Animal Justice.
1: We put out new episodes every two weeks, bringing you in-depth analysis of animal law issues in a way you don't need to be a lawyer to understand.
0: We feature some incredibly interesting guests, and we bring you all the latest animal law news from around the globe.
1: So please listen to Paw & Order on your
0: favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Amanda.
1: Thank you so much, Marianne. It's so great to be
0: back. Yeah, I, I should have said welcome back because, of course, you have been here before. And again, it's about food which is your area of expertise. And it's about one of my very favorite foods on the planet. And that is Miyoko's vegan butter. I imagine a lot of people listening have eaten it. And if you haven't, you definitely need to. Mm-hmm. And it's the subject of this lawsuit. And so before we start, not only is Miyoko's vegan butter one of my favorite products, but Miyoko is one of my favorite people and the company is one of just tell us a little bit about Miyoko.
1: Like you said, the products are amazing, the company is even more amazing if that's possible. Miyoko's company is, you know, very much a mission-driven organization. She's an outspoken advocate. She runs a sanctuary in addition to running Miyoko's Creamery. The company is a certified B Corporation, so you know, it meets the highest of social and environmental standards. And of course, the products are incredibly high-quality products. They're sold across the country. People really seek them out. They're delicious. And and funnily enough, uh, as soon as we brought this lawsuit, both our opposing counsel and our co-counsel went out and in the interests of investigation, bought all the products. And, <laughs> and everyone agrees, including opposing counsel, that the products are absolutely delicious, which makes me wonder if her, her company has grown immensely since it was started in 2013. And I think it's grown 168% in the past year. Wow. I thought... Yeah, and the vegan butter is is the top seller. And is it just coincidence that her top seller is what has been targeted by the California Department of Food and Agriculture? You know, gotta take that with a kind of giant block of salt. So yeah, we're very, very happy to be representing Miyokos. We think this is a very principled position and case, and it's one that has kind of been coming down the pipeline for some time because we've seen uh, push from the industry. The National Milk Producers Federation specifically has kind of been harassing FDA for a long time about, you know, threat of its, from its plant-based co- competitors like Uh And a few years back, they started targeting um, their letters to state agencies uh, because FDA, you know, seemed to have very little appetite, no pun intended, to take up that battle. So targeting States like California, Wisconsin, states that are really very much beholden to the, the dairy industry. And then lo and behold, you know, we have an enforcement letter and, and other enforcement letters against other companies have been coming out very recently from California Department of Food and Agriculture and its milk and dairy food safety branch, which is what's tasked with.
0: Yeah. And the letter that they received was pretty scary. Oh, and I, I do want to mention that, that I had no idea that the butter was their most popular product though i guess i do see it everywhere i even see it in trader joe's so that Mm -hmm. does make sense but if you haven't tried it i I highly recommend it i was one of those babies my mother tells me who would take a stick of butter and eat it (laughs) (laughs) always had issues around around very high fat foods always Uh liked them Mm-hmm. So her butter is a joy, but anyway, getting back to the point at hand. Before we get into this letter, which was a very scary letter, I read the whole letter, and mm-hmm. I would have been scared if I had gotten it. This is a not the easiest question in the world, but what are the statutes and regs at issue in this case? What what is the legal framework that we're talking about that is trying to be enforced against Miyoko? And and it it's as you mentioned, there's both a federal level and a state level, and even though this case involves California. It does involve some federal regulations as far as I understand. And mm-hmm. I really need kind of just the overview of what is the, the regulatory framework that these companies are facing on this kind of issue.
1: Yeah. And uh, sorry to be such a dork, but I really love the the federal regs. So stop me if I ramble on too much. about. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that CDFA um, is relying and citing in its letter um, FDA regs. CDFA is the the California... Department of Food and Agriculture and primary defendant. Yeah. So they're citing regulations in the Code of Federal Regulations and sections from the U.S. Code. The first one that they're relying on is 21 U.S.C. 343B, which is the uh, section of the code that basically prohibits misbranding of food products. You know, anything that's false or misleading in any particular, it's kind of this giant catch-all that is the FDCA and the FDA requiring companies not to purposely or unintentionally uh, even mislead or deceive uh, consumers about you know what the products are in any way. So that's the giant kind of catch-all. The letter also uh, cites 21 CFR 102.5, which governs statements of identity on products. Statements of identity are basically what the products are. It's the common or usual name for a product. So if you look at a box of cereal it'll say you know wheat cereal or rice cereal or something if you look at lays chips it'll say potato chips and oftentimes that's not even the most prominent thing on the uh, principal display panel but it is something that's required to be there by the federal regulations the federal regulations also require them that statement of identity to be truthful and not misleading
0: So when you say potato chips, do they have to be made out of potatoes?
1: They do. Uh, Otherwise, I think that that would run afoul of that uh, false or misleading in any particular. The, The statement of identity is really to give consumers an idea of the nature and contents of a product. Like I said, it could be the common or usual name. It can be even a fanciful name if it's very clear from the principal display panel and the product packaging what the product is. I think the FDA guidance cites uh, vanilla wafers or nilla wafers as a statement of identity that's even acceptable. Mm -hmm.
0: And can I just ask a question here? With statements of identity, like I said, if it says potato chips, it has to be made out of potatoes. Is there a definition of what a potato is that the federal government sets forth? And so if it's not, if it doesn't fit that definition, can you Mm -hmm. not say it's a potato chip? Do they always define all of these terms specifically? Like another kind of tuber would not do?
1: So statements of identity are different than something we call standards of identity. Back in the 1930s, late 1930s, early 1940s, FDA started developing standards of identity for each product. So basically kind of what you're saying, you know, like naming basically the recipe of what a a product can and cannot be in terms of like production and what it contains. And then FDA after a few years was like, this takes forever. And, you know, even promulgating one standard identity for like peanut butter, t- 10 years. So like, okay, this is too onerous. And, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of products out there. So how about let's just do this thing called statements of identity. And as long as it's truthful and not misleading, as long as it tells people kind of like what the product is, we're not going to have an issue with it. So I think... You know, what you're probably envisioning is more of a standard of identity, and there aren't that many of them. But that actually is a good segue because other chunks of the uh, Federal Register and CFR that the CDFA is citing is actually uh, related to standards of identity, because it's the state's position that because there's a standard of identity for butter, saying that, you know, it has to contain this much milk fat and this much cream, that Miyoko's product can't use the term butter. To, to cover the rest of the sections that um, are covered in the CFR. It's also 101.18, which is misbranding of food saying, basically, you can't call your food the name of another food if your food is not that food. <laughs> so you can't, <laughs> in this example, they're saying that Miyoko's can't call her product cultured vegan butter because there's a, a standard of identity for butter out there. And I, you know, I'm sure you'll notice, and and everyone who buys her products and sees the the panels that are facing them, and and the stores sees, it's not just called butter; it's called vegan butter. So that's not a standard standardized term. Vegan butter is the entire statement of identity. Yeah, well, that's
0: kind of that's kind of the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a lot to do with what you're arguing about here. Mm-hmm. But before we get into those kinds of specifics. Can I just go back a second? So there there are just some foods that have a standard of identity defined by the
1: FTA? Mm-hmm. And a lot of those are dairy standards, yeah. I see, okay.
0: Are there any other laws or regulations that are particularly relevant here that we should know
1: about before we jump in? The only one, the other ones cited are 21 CFR 130.8 and, of course, the uh, BUTTER standard of identity, which is found at 21 USC 321A. I will note, just because I perhaps a little bit petty this way, the letter also cited to a section of the Food and Agriculture Code, the Milk and Milk Products Act, which is, of course, a state law, but the state has since withdrawn that position.
0: Oh, yeah, that's the cow thing. It's, yeah, that regulation. I totally want to talk about the cow thing.
1: Uh, no, it's basically saying, yeah, that the, the cow on the website, the, there's a picture of a volunteer kind of hugging a cow. Um, and they said that that needed to be taken down because that was somehow misleading to consumers. <laughs> <laughs> and they've, they've since kind of walked that back. Yeah. No, that's like
0: the <laughs> best thing in the lawsuit. It really is. Like, yeah. you can, there can be absolutely no reason... For a cow to exist, or for you to hug a cow, other than that you yeah. want to milk her and <laughs> sell dairy, that's the only right. reason on the planet.
1: That's what that means to everybody, basically. Right, alongside the the, the phrase uh, "milk plants hug cows." Yes, of course, that's confusing to consumers. You know, and it kind of goes all back to the fact that you know, again, Miyoko's is a mission-driven company. And she's very clear throughout the, the marketing and packaging of her products, like what the mission of her company is. And this letter is basically trying to undermine her ability to even convey the company's mission and kind of its ethos to consumers, which is, you know, at its core the First Amendment issue. Let's
0: get into the specifics of the letter, because the letter was scary. And I read it, if, I, if it was my company, I would have been like, oh my God, we're in trouble. Can you just tell us basically
1: what they said and what they told her she had to do? Of course. It's a pretty short letter, but again, very, very scary. And it was worded in no uncertain terms. that. And that's important. Yeah, it is. It wasn't an invitation to talk. It wasn't, you know, hey, you know, we think that there are these issues. Like, let's get puddle up and, and see what we can do. It was very much like, you need to remove these statements. You may not do this. Remove all of these things and then let us know when you have, basically. The things that the CDFA took umbrage with were basically saying that Miyoko's could not use the phrase 100% cruelty and animal-free, which again, it is, you know, when you have a plant-based product, animals are not implicated in any way and they're not tortured in order to make that butter. They said that she could not use the term lactose-free, again, a completely truthful statement you know, which is relevant for people who have trouble digesting lactase. And again, all plant-based products would be lactose-free. They also said that she had to remove the word butter in the phrase vegan plant butter and cultured vegan butter. And of course, that infamous, she had to remove the image of a woman hugging a cow. Um, and in that withdrawal of position on the the woman hugging the cow on the website, So that was just as to the website. I will note that um, I think that the new packages actually have a picture of Miyoko hugging a cow on the packages again to kind of convey the, the, what the, what the company is about to consumers. Because I think consumers actually care about that. And there, some people at least are buying Miyokos because they agree with Miyoko's concerns about animal treatment and the fact that agriculture has on the environment, et cetera. So those were the the main points saying, oh, and I, I can't forget, they even said that Miyoko's cannot literally say her, her company's mission statement, which is revolutionizing dairy with plant. So it cannot, basically saying the company can't convey its own mission statement to the public because somehow that revolutionizing dairy with plants it makes the products misbranded under federal law, which is, I mean, absolutely crazy. And I think just because... The word dairy is there, is, is the reason they're saying that.
0: As you mentioned, not only were these requirements, which are pretty onerous, but the tone mm-hmm. was was pretty strong, like you have mm-hmm. to do this or you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. They didn't say you're in trouble. They just said you have to do this, which, you know, you get a letter from the government <laughs> does imply. Do they talk to everybody like this? Do you think there was a particular uh, tone here that that, you know, if they had a problem with another company, they might just say... Oh, we looked at this We're, you know, we'd like to hear your position on this. We're a little uncomfortable with it. Let us know what you think. Or or do they talk to like this to everybody?
1: I haven't gone through and looked at all of the letters, including letters to dairy companies. I I suspect that this tends to be a pretty, uh, not a form letter because, you know, the facts of each marketing and labeling for products is going to differ, of course, product by product. I do think, and I've spoken to people, you know, in the dairy industry on this, and I think that they kind of have an ongoing relationship, a more, you know, cordial relationship with CDFA. And so that they know that, you know, someone stops by even before giving a letter and they'll talk to them or, you know, they'll call someone up. And it tends to be much more, you know, of an open door policy. I think that this type of letter just kind of sent to Miyokos without some kind of preface is is kind of different. I think that this terminology and and this tone, if you will, is similar to the tone that the CDFA has taken with other plant-based dairy companies, um, from what I gather. And I will say that I can't even tell you which plant-based companies have kind of been harassed like this and gotten equally threatening letters because everyone's very much scared of what CDFA can do if they do not comply. They're scared of sticking their necks out. They're scared of retribution by CDFA if they come out in support of this lawsuit. And even the court in its uh, order denying the state's motion to dismiss, said, you know, it's hard to establish a history of enforcement, but it's it doesn't really, it's not really necessary because what CDFA can do is so scary to consumers. They can, they have criminal and civil penalties at their disposal within 60 days of getting this letter if there's no uh, response by the company or change, uh, basically the company caving. Uh, they can start pulling products from shelves. It's such a huge threat that basically all companies who get these types of letters almost immediately say, okay, we'll we'll make these changes. So Miyoko's was really very courageous filing this lawsuit and saying, no, this is our First Amendment right to truthful commercial speech. And
0: in addition to really believing that this is the right thing to do, it would cost them a lot of money, right? How much would it cost for Miyoko's to comply with these demands?
1: Right. Because they would have to change all of their packaging and they just ordered new packaging. They would have to change all of their marketing everywhere. Um, it would cost them at least a million dollars. And with small companies, you know, Miyoko's is, is you know growing a lot. It's very successful. But there are a lot of other um, smaller plant-based companies out there where this would basically ruin them if they had to Make these changes, and a and million dollars is is not small change even for a company like Miyoko's. So it's, you know, this letter is not only hurting Miyoko's because it's, you know, threatening that type of financial damage, but it's also chilling their speech. If you get a letter like this, you think, oh no, like what what changes can I make? Are those going to run afoul? Am I going to get another letter? What about my other products? You know, so Miyoko's had, you know, there was a flurry of activity after getting this letter on December 9th this past December meetings and saying like, you know, what can we do? What do we need to do? How do we comply? You know how does this affect our branding and marketing? I, I mean it's it's an incredible uh, infringement of again truthful commercial speech, which is of course protected under the, the First Amendment. So yeah, this letter was not I, I reading this letter, I in no way got the sense that this was some kind of invitation to have a chat which, of course, was the state's position, both in their uh, motion to dismiss they filed and, you know, kind of in their opposition to our motion for preliminary injunction, which is pending, saying like, oh, well, there's no enforcement here. This is just a friendly letter. But, you know, friendly letters don't say remove all of these things and and then get back with us.
0: No, the, the tone was very frightening. It really was. And I should mention, though, it's this is probably obvious to people, that you can't just change your packaging for California, you know, like Mm -hmm. a company that's in business around the country. That's very, that would be a very complicated thing to do with different distributors and and Mm -hmm. you would run a great risk of getting it wrong. It would be complicated. So if you're going to, if one state's making you change your packaging, that's going to be your new packaging for everybody. So it's not just Mm -hmm. your first amendment rights in California. It's, it's your first amendment rights everywhere.
1: Right. And Miocas is based in California. You know, it has probably the largest sales in California. And I will say, when my past life as a food litigator, I tended to usually bring uh, California just state class actions because I knew that if I could force a company to change its labels in California, they would just do it in the whole country because it's the hugest market. So yeah, I mean, it would it would not be so that million dollars of changing everything is, you know, gonna be for changing everything everywhere, uh, nationwide. So You know, I I do also think that that's why industry lobby groups like the National Milk Producers Federation have targeted states like California, in addition to the fact that California has, um, I think, the largest liquid milk production in the entire country. So, you know, it's kind of twofold. You know, the largest constituents of CDFA who actually are interested in protecting cow's milk and also, you know, the the biggest market and, and the one that will cause nationwide change if plant-based producers have to comply with these crazy uh, demands.
0: So that brings us to, let's sue. That's what Miyokas decided to do because they didn't see really any other way around it. And I think you're in federal court in California and you're suing basically the state of California, but really it's the substantive agency is the milk and dairy food safety branch of the food and agriculture
1: department. The Milk and Dairy Food Safety Branch is kind of a sub branch of the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Mm-hmm. So when I'm saying CDFA, I do mean California Department of Food and Agriculture, but I also mean the MDFS.
0: And you you're suing you only have one cause of action that has to do with the First Amendment. And I do we will have an opportunity to get into more detail about that claim a little later. But but first, what I, what I really wanted to talk to you about was this motion to dismiss, which is not directly related to the merits. But I do promise everybody we'll, mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about the merits a little bit. We won't have a decision on them, but we'll talk about them. But we do have a decision on this uh, motion to dismiss that they that they brought. So I really do want to talk about it. So can you just tell us a little bit about this motion to dismiss and and their grounds? Right. Yeah. I was.
1: It was kind of exciting to see. Exciting meaning that I'm a huge dork and also uh, (laughs) an overstatement. But, you know, it wasn't that the state was saying that, no, these things are actually very confusing. It didn't, you know, take that tack. Instead, it took kind of like an almost procedural tack, arguing that uh, Miyoko's lacked Article 3 standing, basically saying that, you know, there's been no injury in fact and, you know, there's been no enforcement and thus, you know, ripeness and standing are, are issues here. They also argued they just threw the kitchen sink at uh, abstention. <laughs> they argued Burford, Younger, and Pullman ab- abstention, right. which was uh, and they actually
0: um, walked back a little bit. I <laughs> do want to get into detail on those because it's not often I run into an abstention case. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a good opportunity, but let's talk about standing. There's just no way we can escape standing in animal law, is there? <laughs> like, when it doesn't I have know. anything to do with animals, where yeah. they're oh, they never, they don't want us in court. They just don't want us in court. So I know that, as you just mentioned, the standing here issue here is basically related to ripeness. So can you explain what ripeness is and how it relates to standing
1: in in this instance? Yeah. So ripeness and standing in First Amendment contexts almost completely merge, Um, basically, Saying that you know this, this is something that favorable favorable decision is going to redress the injury. Um, the harm is actual and imminent, and then you've got the standing side of things. Injury, in fact, injury that's you know real and concrete rather than speculative and hypothetical. So basically, it's almost one and the same. The, the ripeness and and the Article Three standing analysis here. So it, it was kind of odd that. We, we got the order on the motion to dismiss. I think within an hour and a half of the the hearing, so that was kind of interesting. But I, I was surprised to see that that's the, crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think probably even though there was no tentative, I think that the the court already knew what uh, you know they wanted wanted to do. we have, or before uh, the Honorable Seborg uh, is a, a very reasonable and intelligent judge. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because we dismiss, the situation <laughs> we dismiss. So they analyzed it under kind of a pre-enforcement challenge, uh, which was, was a little bit odd because here, I think we took the position that this letter is enforcement. It, it is the first step of enforcement. This is not a pre-enforcement challenge. We don't need to, you know, wait any further for any more injury. This is already injury. But putting that aside, you know, we were able to show pretty clearly that Miyoko's does have a concrete plan to violate the law in question. You know, she is, you know, according to the state anyway, uh, violating the law. She's not going to back down from using terms like vegan butter. That's not confusing to consumers. That's truthful commercial speech, which is protected. So that's the
0: first element that you need to have with this pre-enforcement challenge, you need to have a concrete plan to violate the
1: statute. Yep, that's that's correct. Uh, the second kind of prong there is that there has to be a specific threat. Again, we think that this letter is very clearly a specific threat. This is not just uh, an agency opining on you know generalized matters of like what would be complying with laws. This is targeted at Miyoko's. This was. Demanding that she remove certain very important representations and words from her packaging and marketing. The third thing that you have to prove under Thomas is history of past enforcement, which I kind of mentioned earlier. Yeah. We had a few declarations, uh, including one from the executive director of the Plant-Based Foods Association saying that, yeah, she was familiar with other companies that have received similar letters. I personally have spoken to a handful of other companies that have received letters, none of which wanted to be called out by name because they're that afraid of retribution from CDFA and being targeted further. And I do think, again, that plant-based companies are being specifically targeted here it seems to be a priority. And I will say that even it's, it's, it's kind of hard to show uh, enforcement even beyond the fact that companies are scared because CDFA has been known to just drive by and stop and and tell vegan companies that they're doing something wrong. So then there's no paper trail. So I think it's either if you're being very cynical, I guess, that they're doing that on purpose, or if you're not being cynical, that's just how they operate. Um, Mm -hmm. but, it does make it difficult. I, I would argue that that's probably purposely. But the point is, is that for us and for the court, standing was, you know, not even a question. And again, the, the other thing about Article 3 standing here uh, in First Amendment context, you know, they really slant towards finding standing because it's such an important principle. Um, so anytime there's chilled speech, you know, that's something that courts really want to prevent. And you know, here we had chilled speech. We had a huge burden on the company, in terms of you know what they felt they could do, in terms of marketing and you know new product labeling and working with partners. So yeah, that that all wraps up nice and neat to a package of showing um, that we very clearly had standing and in concrete injury, in fact.
0: Well, it's it's not really evidence, but I have basically always heard that this the california's department of agriculture is very tough on vegan products vegan cheeses like that's all i know i don't know any of the details but mm-hmm. that's kind of out in the zeit in the vegan zeitgeist so for what that's worth but i thought the really remarkable argument was that they said this wasn't really a threat of prosecution mm-hmm. that it was just uh, what did they say? Like, did they say it was just an attempt to open negotiations? Are you kidding? Yeah, a
1: like conversation opener or something. <laughs> uh, Judge Seaborg even noted that kind of with some derision in his order. Like this is, you're demanding things be removed. It's not like a, a friendly letter. This is not initial, you know. No. I'm going to uh, actually, I'm,
0: I, I copied some of it. The, the product cannot bear the name butter because the product is not butter. Okay. <laughs> That's that's. Are we negotiating so, here? Butter. What about almond butter? <laughs> <What> about- <laughs> the product makes the following claims lactose-free, hormone-free, and cruelty-free because the product is not a dairy product. It cannot assert these claims as they, mm-hmm. I mean, it just says this. It doesn't say we'd like to discuss with you whether these mm-hmm. uh, claims are appropriate. It, mm-hmm. It's just completely written in draconian terms. So that is a, that was a ridiculous argument. You
1: know, and I wonder if they know when they're writing this, that if they write it like this and know, and if companies know what they're facing, if they don't comply, I wonder if they know that companies are just going to immediately cave and they're not going to get any pushback.
0: Yeah, I, people with power can kind of overlook the fact of the impact their power has on those who don't have so much, and government can be guilty of that. But it is hard to believe how they would see this as a,
1: oh, let's open some negotiations on this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this isn't a part of the lawsuit, but we're talking about the zeitgeist and the kind of like universal understanding of how CDFA interacts with plant-based dairy companies in California. I will say that they recently ramped up inspections, like in-person inspections of facilities under the Milk and Milk Products Act, which is... I don't know. It's kind of weird that it, they're the ones even tasked with that, because you know they're they're used to looking at like the food and safety issues of dairy production facilities. I don't see how Miyoko's needs to comply with uh, you know the food safety things of, of products that you know have very different food safety considerations. You know that are you know that's you know the bodily secretions from an animal versus you know cultured cashew. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just the labels and marketing that's on CDFA's radar, unfortunately. You know, the inspections yeah. again are not a part of this lawsuit. But yeah, I think that there's definitely an understanding throughout our community that, you know, plant-based dairy products are being targeted. And, you know, not to jump back away from the law again, but but you look at the impetus of this and you look at the fact that plant-based dairy companies have grown 3.1% in the past year while traditional dairy products have shrunk 5%. I think plant-based dairy milk is 10% of the market share for all milk now. This is a really really growing industry and so then you think okay so if it's growing that much then the traditional, you know, animal-based milk companies are really afraid of it and then they bug their buddies at state agencies and then we have this. And California isn't even the only agency that kind of has taken crazy actions. I think that there was uh, Wisconsin after the Wisconsin Department of Ag and Consumer Protection had a meeting with the Wisconsin Dairy Products Association, which is a trade group. Then they went ahead and said, "Oh yeah, we've had consumer complaints again," which is which were from the uh, trade group supporting dairy, and they started pulling Miyoko's products from shelves in Wisconsin, you know, basically the best of industry. So, you know, that's not a substantial government interest. We've talked about this before with the kind of meat labeling cases that, you know, industry protectionism, attacking one industry in order to shore up another one is not constitutional. You can't do that.
0: Well, Unless you're in Wisconsin or California, or, <laughs> no. I'm surprised this hasn't happened in New York. Another enormous mm-hmm. dairy state,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where yeah. dairy is always being touted as practically a state, a, a huge state interest. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, and this is shocking, but actually not surprising if you can be both of those things at the same time. And
1: then they have these, so they're you know basically working at the behest of the industry, and then under the guise kind of post hoc rationalization of consumer. Confusion preventing against c- consumer confusion, which is, you know, again kind of ludicrous because you know there's no evidence whatsoever that consumers are confused. There have been studies actually on you know the plant-based dairy side showing that consumers are not confused, uh, done by researchers at UCLA. Um, it's you know every every plant-based company out there is trying to differentiate itself from animal-based dairy. You know that, that's why. Yeah, because they're are... more
0: expensive. It's it's their. <laughs> it's their selling point.
1: It is. It's it's a feature, not a glitch. They are better for the environment. They don't involve animal abuse. They're healthier. They don't have cholesterol. You know, a, a lot of things. They don't have lactose. A lot of people seek these things. People who are buying them are seeking them out. So it wouldn't make sense for them to try and confuse consumers into thinking that they were, you know, from a cow.
0: Well, let's get back to the... Um to this legal question, which doesn't have anything to do with, with animals whatsoever. But as I say, I don't get to talk about it very often. So this is educational for me, abstention, because they the, the court did, made kind of short shrift of this argument. But can you just kind of tell us, I mean, this is a, a federal court's issue, when things can be heard in federal court. And just tell us, they cited, as you mentioned before, two separate doctrines here for why the federal court should basically abstain from mm-hmm. even hearing this case just on this idea that it should be a state issue. Issue. Mm-hmm. And can you just kind of tell us these, this, let's start with the Pullman argument.
1: Of course. And I, I'll, I'll say that, you know, the reason we don't see abstention very much is because it's definitely the exception rather than the rule, and especially so with First Amendment cases.
0: Yeah, um, I've never heard of federal courts refusing yeah. to hear anything that they, they possibly could get their hands on, but uh, so, Pullman first? yes. Yeah, let's talk about Pullman and then we'll talk about uh, what's the other one? Buford.
1: Okay. Yeah, Burford. And they also threw in Younger and then withdrew it. So I can talk about that too. But for <laughs> Pullman, basically, that's saying that this issue can be resolved by resolving issues of state law. So a court will abstain if state law issues moot or narrow, like the constitutional question. Again, I said it's generally inappropriate in First Amendment contexts because it's really never satisfied because free expression is almost always an area of particular federal concern. I see. So nothing that the state could resolve. They're citing federal regulations. This is First Amendment. This is all federal stuff. So what What could the state, what state question or issue could be resolved that would get rid of this case? I don't know. And I don't even know what that would, would look like. So yeah, that's one, again, short shrift is what you said. The court said, nope, Pullman does not apply.
0: Yeah. How do you get, I mean, if the point is to narrow or moot the constitutional questions, how do you do that in a first amendment? Well, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of this, the top of my head. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think the answer is you don't. Um, yeah. I could think if there were, it was like an underlying state law and, you know, it had some, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe if that were the case, uh, there would be a better argument there. But I think that all of the abstention arguments were, were incredibly weak. Okay.
0: So the the second one is, Younger and and is it Buford or Burford?
1: Burford, I think. Okay. Um, But I've only had one cup of coffee today.
0: so I'm I'm just looking at my own notes and I have Buford, but I probably spelled it wrong. So just just tell us, you know, briefly what these theories are and why they're nonsensical here and the court, because the court obviously thought they were nonsensical.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Younger applies when there's some kind of like ongoing state judicial proceeding, like an admin proceeding that's Judicial nature, uh, which is not what this is, you know. So it's it was kind of like the state talking out of two sides of its mouth, saying like, "Oh, this letter is just a friendly letter," but also there's like an ongoing <laughs> uh, judicial proceeding about it. It's like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. And also, I think that the state realized that you know it, it would have to be kind of like a like an administrative proceeding. This was not you know just what the agency does on a daily basis, and there's no you know current pending proceeding and. and like a state admin court. So they withdrew that abstention argument, which, you know, even before we got to our, I think before we got to our opposition, maybe. And then Burford abstention is when there's like an essentially local issue arising out of like a complicated state regulatory scheme. But that's not really the case here either, because, you know, it's not a local issue. It's federal constitutional rights, which are, you know, first amendment challenges. Again, pretty ill-suited for ad- abstention, uh, especially Burford abstention. The the court basically said that, you know, deciding, keeping this in federal court and having this case ongoing, it's not going to disrupt any state effort to establish a coherent policy, regulatory policy. So yeah, that that's, I think that was like the shortest part of the, the court order, but
0: yeah. So you have survived the motion to dismiss and the case is proceeding. I had promised we were going to be able to talk about the merits, and this is not part of the case that has been decided yet, but I do want to talk about it because people are no doubt interested in in this and what next steps will be, and this will give an opportunity for people to familiarize themselves with the case and, and look for this decision to see how it comes out, and this is uh, your motion for a preliminary injunction.
1: That's still being briefed and won't be heard until mid-August. Okay.
0: But let's just, I mean, we've already talked a bit about the merits just in the process of talking about the case, but basic law school process for people out there who are listening and practice corporate law, just remind us of of the elements for getting a
1: preliminary injunction. Of course. Yeah. So the first prong basically is like uh, that showing that you're likely to succeed on the merits. And then the second prong is going to be a uh, facing irreparable harm. And, and then the last prong is a balance of the equities in public interest and in consideration of that. Um, and then kind of like sub, in order to show that we would per, have likely to succeed on the merits, we go through the central Hudson analysis.
0: Yeah, I, that's what I really want to get into because I want to talk a little bit about the merits. And we've you and I have talked about central Hudson before. And let's talk about central Hudson again and, and remind us what commercial speeches and what the Central Hudson test
1: requires? Of course. So again, commercial speech is protected under the First Amendment as long as it's not false. And I'll clarify, it's it has to be inherently false in order to not be protected. So even commercial speech that could be potentially false is, is still protected, and Central Hudson still applies. And then here, when we have things like vegan butter or, you know, hormone-free or lactose-free or cruelty-free or, you know, all these terms, like these things are obviously truthful. Um, So they're not even in any way potentially misleading. So, you know, definitely meeting that first prong of Central Hudson that, the, you know, in order to be protected under the First Amendment, truthful speech can't be false. You know, none of these things are false.
0: They are arguing that one aspect of this is actually untrue. Isn't that right? The hormone-free uh, label. Can you just go into that argument a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's uh, not what really what our uh, motion for preliminary injunction even rests on. And, you know, I think that that can be kind of dealt with rather easily because that's that's not what this hinges on. And there are a lot of other terms and, and, and representations that, you know, are undoubtedly true and, and truthful commercial speech. And then, you know, the, I think that Even if we want to buy into the state's framework and discuss whether, you know, hormone free is true, I think it is true because consumers are concerned about the recumbent bovine growth hormone and this product does not contain that. So, you know, when someone's looking at dairy products, including plant-based dairy, I don't know. People want to avoid that. So if a person is trying to avoid recumbent bovine growth hormone and they see no hormones on this plant butter, they might choose plant butter instead of, you know, other, uh, cow's butter products or other you know dairy products.
0: their argument is that there are just naturally occurring hormones in like every natural food
1: right and i'm not a scientist but i think that yeah basically isn't that saying that like then literally all food has hormones in it it seems <laughs> it seems
0: like but i'm not a scientist here, so uh, we probably shouldn't talk about it
1: <laughs> i'll reach out to my old friends at center for science and the public interest see if they yeah. can we, <laughs> give me some yeah. guidance on that
0: Can I go back? Because there's something else I think they're arguing. It's a little confusing. Maybe I have it wrong. But I mean, false or misleading is the threshold issue in Central Hudson. And they are arguing that hormone-free is false because there's hormones in everything. But they're also arguing a bunch of statements are misleading. And you did allude to this before. But can you just tell us what their argument is? I think lactose-free, cruelty-free, revolutionary dairy with plants. They think if I understand their argument correctly, they think that these will make people think this is new some new kind of dairy that is lactose free because there are there is dairy that's mm-hmm. lactose free and cruelty free, which you know is impossible but <laughs> but, but they'll the, or revolutionary dairy with plants, they'll think this is a new kind of cow-based dairy that has these mm-hmm. properties. Is that their argument?
1: I think that this is kind of almost like the philosophical question um, and almost why this feels like it's what Miyoko's is doing is almost like political speech and even should be more protected. Because
0: well, I'll just put it in as a side. I had... Sherry Kolb and Jarab Gleckel on the podcast to talk about their article talking about viewing these cases in a political speech spectrum. So if people want to check that out, but I'm sorry, Amanda, that was an in, I inserted an ad.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I, I love Sherry and Jarab, so plug them <laughs> for sure. But yeah, so it's almost political speech because dairy is not a proprietary term, you know, plant-based dairy is a thing now. And I think that it's really, Miyoko is very much doing this very interesting and courageous thing saying, no, no, no. What we do is dairy. It's just plant-based dairy. So, you know, it's really, is it a proprietary term? Do they own the term dairy even when it's, you know, with appropriate qualifiers so consumers know that it's like without animals? So, you know, the state is kind of buying into and taking that like philosophical political side of the dairy industry saying, no, no, no like this term belongs to us. And we don't want that term used by anyone else, even if it is the best way to describe products, uh, the best way to convey to consumers what to expect or how to use the products, the best way to kind of characterize what business Miyoko sees herself in. She's making delicious cheeses and delicious butter. They're vegan. And again, that's completely conveyed to consumers, but, you know, basically saying, no, these are our terms and you can't use them even if you're calling them vegan butter or vegan dairy. Is, is, I think that's the state's position.
0: It really is a fundamental philosophical issue or mm-hmm. linguistic issue or something. Who mm-hmm. owns the language? Mm-hmm. Do they own our language? Like, you walk into a supermarket and you see lots of things in in the quote unquote dairy aisle, and mm-hmm. some of them are vegan, some of them are orange juice. <laughs> you know, it's frequently in the dairy aisle, like like the supermarkets put it there because that's where they think people will look for it because that's mm-hmm. what they think people dare think dairy means. Mm-hmm. Eggs are there, you know, lots of things are in the dairy aisle. Okay. So as times change, as the language shifts, it's the government just get to own it and say no? We're defining this word. So, I, I think you know, it's such an interesting...
1: And the other thing is the state's really putting their uh, proverbial, sorry for the non-vegan, saying their, their proverbial eggs in, a, in the standards of identity basket, and that like this is misleading and false because it's not meeting the standard of identity for butter and blah, blah, blah. The FDA has is tasked with enforcement of its own regulations, and it's never gone after plant-based dairy companies you know so there's a, a long history of non-enforcement from the from the federal agency tasked with enforcing standards of identity you know, I think these are truthful statements of identity. If you look at the case law, because there've been a few class actions about involving uh, plant-based dairy products like soy milk and almond milk, and we have a great Ninth Circuit decision saying that consumers aren't misled and this is not running foul of standards of identity. So there, there are a lot of things kind of cutting against the state's position that the usage of terminology like dairy and, and butter, again, plant-based dairy and revolutionizing all that is, is misleading. I think that that's uh, it really, really strange credulity. So yeah, I, I think that that's a very kind of weak position to take that, you know, saying that this language is false.
0: One of the things that they rely upon and perhaps one of the reasons they chose this particular product to target is the existence of margarine, which so they say that there has been a non-cow based spread for a long time and it's defined and 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 that's why this is different than, the, than milk's. Can you explain their argument a little bit and why you think it's wrong?
1: Yeah, so they're they're bringing up margarine. I kind of think again that it's a bit of a red herring. First of all, Miyoko's doesn't meet the uh, standards for margarine. It has less fat, I believe, than margarine has to have. Again, and, and these products are not margarine. Margarine tends to be, I think, yeah, not a food scientist, but it's uh, you know a plant oil. It's oil based. Uh, these are cu- cultured cashew based. You know they're you know very very different. It's higher quality, I would say. It takes more effort and time to produce, I think the taste is different than margarine. The taste is so good. Oh my God. Should I go back to that? (laughs) You know, you were saying that you used to eat sticks of butter. I never liked butter until I met Yoko's vegan butter. And then I found myself like licking the knife and I'm like, I don't even like butter. (laughs) I wish
0: I had never liked butter, but I'm confessing it.
1: I don't remember being young enough to eat sticks, but you know,
0: I remember (laughs) slathering it on things. (laughs) I distracted Uh, you from... uh,
1: yeah. So I was just saying that they're saying these terms are false. It's kind of, again, red herring territory. Um, And, you know, again, that's the kind of the easiest prong dispatch of the, the Central Hudson analysis. I think that they also really rely on, you know, the prong saying that, you know, there is a substantial government interest, state interest in the regulation of advertising and marketing to avoid consumer confusion. And yeah, sure, that's a substantial interest. I agree. States and federal governments should prevent companies from misleading consumers. That's not what's going on here.
0: So you're not really arguing about whether there's a significant government interest?
1: I would like to personally argue that this is not actually the interest at play here, and it's more industry protectionism. But even if we buy into their framework, they still have to show that that is an issue, that it is confusing consumers. They have to show that their enforcement directly advances that interest in preventing consumer confusion. So first of all, they have to show there's consumer confusion, which is not something they're going to be able to show. There's no evidence of that, you know. And just looking at the the marketing and packaging, it's all very, very clear. Again, to designed to distinguish these products from cow dairy. And then they so then they have to show first consumer confusion exists, then that their enforcement directly advances that interest. I don't know how they're going to show that. I don't know how adding with like, imitation or you know, whatever they're arguing or removing these things would prevent consumer confusion. I would say it even would sow more consumer confusion because I don't... W- what would these products be called? Like cultured cashew product spread? You know, like the consumers aren't going to know what the heck these products are or how to use them. So really the way that they're currently labeled and marketed is the most effective and clearest way to convey to consumers what they are and what to expect.
0: Yeah, I mean, forgetting legal ramifications, just thinking of myself as a consumer. It's very important to me as a consumer who prefers not to buy animal-based products to have an idea of what these products will taste like. I mean, that's just a factor I like to know when I'm buying something. (laughs) So if they tell me it's cultured cashews, I'm going to be like thinking it'll taste like cashews. It doesn't taste like cashews. Taste is a factor
1: in in purchase of food. It just is. And how to use it too. So if you don't know what if you you see cultured cashews, you'd be like, that probably tastes like cashews and what do you do with that? Do you like eat it with a spoon? Do you like put it on ice cream? Do you I don't know, what do you do grill it? I don't know. But you know what to do with vegan butter, you know, whatever you do with normal Um, butter. I mean we're consumers too.
0: True, we need information, and that's valid and valuable information to me in
1: making a purchasing decision. Yeah, and it's not just vegans who are eating these products and are interested in this. You know, there's you know, I hate the term, but flexitarians out there. There are people who you know want something a little bit more more natural, something without the cow hormones in it, something that doesn't involve all the water usage. You know, we know it's not just vegans buying Mm -hmm. it, or else it wouldn't be flying off the
0: (laughs) shelves. There's plenty of people out there buying it who Mm -hmm. are not us, but we matter
1: too. Uh, And so in the state's opposition to our motion for preliminary injunction, it kind of skips over like the last two prongs of the central Hudson analysis almost. Like they don't show that what they're doing is going to directly advance that interest and they don't show that what they're doing is no more extensive than necessary in order to achieve that interest. Interesting. And again, they would not be able to show that because there are so many layers of federal and state protections preventing against anything that it actually is misleading. And And there's no evidence that any consumer is actually misled by this. So I think that the central Hudson analysis definitely cuts in our favor and shows that, you know, we're going to be likely to prevail on the merits. And I mentioned the meat labeling cases earlier. And I think since the last time we spoke, we had a, a good decision in Arkansas granting our motion for preliminary injunction there saying that we were likely to succeed on the merits. So, you know, I, I expect this to go similarly. The other prongs, I guess, of the motion for preliminary injunction, as I mentioned, is does the company face irreparable harm? Like, we've kind of already shown that in our opposition to the motion to dismiss, which, you know, got denied or, you know, the right. motion to dismiss got denied because I think that irreparable harm is already happening. It's, you know, kind of similar to the reasonable fear of enforcement prong, you know, injury in fact analysis. So, you know, we kind of already showed that, that, you know, speech has been chilled and, you know because that's such a, an important principle that our government is, is kind of founded on, I think that that tends to cut definitely in our favor in terms of showing that there is irreparable harm. And again, because this is a First Amendment case, I think that the balance of equities also very much cuts in our favor. There's this huge chilling of speech, there's the harm to the company, there's not just chilling of speech to the company, but probably the whole plant-based uh, dairy industry on the one hand, you're, you know, chilling that speech, which weighs very heavy. And on the other hand, you have what? I don't, I don't I'm not sure how the, the state is harmed if, if this motion for preliminary injunction is granted. You know, these, these products have been on the shelf since 2013. You know, no big issue, you know, no harm to the state there. I'd say that, you know, plant-based dairy products have been on the market for decades and decades. And we've only seen states and, and you know, the industry getting in a tizzy recently. And, you know, again, I think that's because... They're afraid of the competition from plant-based totally. dairy. It's not because they're all of a sudden very concerned about, you know, apparently very stupid consumers confusing these products for cow with products.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I there's no evidence that, confu- if, if anything, any confusion, which I don't think there ever was any confusion, but it would be diminishing now because it's so much more widely publicized that these products are on the market. And, and are in the, super, you know, people are aware now that there are plant-based products out there and plant-based analogs out mm-hmm. there much more than they used to be. So the, mm-hmm. the potential for deception, I think, has become so much less than for all these years when they just completely ignored this. The real problem is, is that they're losing market share.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, like, that's fear and wanting to quash the competition is not a substantial government interest. That's not a constitutional thing that, it, like, you can use. The industry can't use state federal laws and state agencies to basically uh, attack their competition, to wrong foot their competition just because they don't like it. So it's really kind of a shame because CDFA, well, the milk and dairy food safety branch is tasked, it's kind of like similar to USDA, tasked with promoting, you know, the cow's milk and stuff. And so you have this yeah. agency tasked with promoting one thing also in charge of, they call it products resembling products under that act, your vegan products. It's kind of a, an awkward and... It's begging for you know conflict and and prejudice. I think. And then what I was saying, I'm trying to say before I interrupted myself, <laughs> was that it's, it's a shame because you know goes is a California company. She's you know helping the local economy. She's providing jobs. I think she's helping California. You know, huge drought issues and water usage. And you know, these products are better for that. You know, this is really the wave of the future. And it's really kind of dis- disheartening to see. State agencies kind of trying to squash these, you know, innovation and, and improvements in the food system and food supply. And again, I think that that's sad on the, the state agencies. I also would really hope that maybe, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but at some point the animal agriculture and the But this is kind of a quixotic quest. These arguments about consumer confusion are not holding much water. It's pretty transparently protectionist. And, you know, I really wish they would focus on why consumers are increasingly preferring plant-based products and staying away from products that harm the environment and their health and animals, rather than doubling down on this, you know, their inefficient and cruel, you know, practices and industry.
0: Yeah, it is very disheartening. And let's hope this lawsuit is one of the things that helps that tide turn. And we'll all be looking forward to getting a decision on this in a couple of months, perhaps, and and it'll have a huge impact. It'll have a huge impact on one of my favorite companies and on this industry as a whole. So I guess I I usually end by asking people next steps, but we know what your next steps are. Your next step is to finish the briefing on on your uh, motion for preliminary injunction and then just wait and see what happens. And you're working with other lawyers as well on this. I'm always interested in how that sorts out, like who does what when you work together. Can you just like lay that out a little bit
1: for me? Yeah, we're, we're lucky enough to be uh, co-counseling with the very prestigious nationwide law firm, uh, Gupta Wessler. Deepak Gupta actually took the last commercial speech First Amendment case all the way up to the Supreme Court. So, you know, we feel like we're in very good hands here. <laughs> and he's no stranger to these issues. And Gupta Wessler takes on very principled cases. They're always on the side of angels. So um, they see this as the, the way we do, you know, that this is not something that is just going to affect Miyoko's, but if it goes poorly it could have bad ramifications not just for the industry but for you know the environment for consumers right to know things for you know animals um, and if it goes well i think that that can also have a shot across the bow to fda who's you know i think they're in their fourth request they maybe it just closed for public comment about standards identity and whether consumers are confused about these things fda has been sitting on this for years now, and you know, I think that this type of case could really go a long way towards indicating to FDA that you no, know, this is this is not a fight that you want to take on, continue on your history of non-enforcement. So, yeah, things um, change,
0: guys. Things <laughs> change.
1: Yeah, and I think that is actually noting that uh, because their last request for public comment said something about how standards identity actually are stifling innovation. I'm like, yeah, I think you guys are getting it now.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) They're even talking about uh, revising or revoking standards identity. So the fact that, you know, the state is kind of relying heavily on that is even worse for them, I guess. Well, this
0: has been really interesting. I can't wait to hear what happens. I'm on tenterhooks and... (laughs) Thank you so much for explaining it in such detail, Amanda. It's really, it's really, really been enlightening.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Amanda for enlightening us about this case. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. And in the meantime, if you do like what you hear here, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. Please consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. That's how other people find out about it. It makes it much easier to search for us. And if you're able, of course, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org donate. And thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to be safe, wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands, and of course, stay home and listen to podcasts.